everyone. It's good to be here. Good to have you with us. And good to be sharing in the scriptures together. Uh, we've already asked God to help us as we come to his word. Now, over the last, how many weeks has it been? Can you count? We've been looking through 1 Corinthians and it's been an amazing journey. We're coming towards the end of 1 Corinthians and we'll actually start looking at 1 Corinthians again after Easter. But in the meantime, sorry, Easter day. Um, anyway, that's from me off, uh, on Easter Day and following. And, but today and for Good Friday, we're just taking a little sort of diversion off into the events that actually make Easter. And so we're thinking today about, that, about Palm Sunday, because today is known as Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem, and then next Friday, Good Friday, and the events of Good Friday. So, as we look at John chapter 12 today, it will be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open, whether it's an electronic form or a paper form, there's lots of the books around that you can have open at John chapter 12. It was read for us earlier, uh, it would be really helpful for you to have that, we'll be looking at that in some detail. But I don't know how many of you, now this is something that's a little bit hard these days, isn't it, because so little has happened over the last couple of years, but how do you prepare for travelling? Does anybody remember how to do that? I mean, ever thought about it? Here's, here's a question. Where's your passport? My goodness. <laughs> I know where it is, I think, because we have this certain special little place where we keep those sorts of things. But there are all these things that when you travel, you get prepared for. And those wonderful few days before you leave when you pack, right? And you get everything together. You have your bedroom covered in stuff and you have this tiny little bag and you think, all right, how am I going to get all of that, which I desperately need, into that? You know you only have a fixed amount of luggage you can take. You start culling, don't you? Okay, I can wear underpants inside and out before I wear it. No, 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 that's only the boys, I know, I know, it's only the boys. Uh, you, you take out what you'd like to take and you only put in what you absolutely have to take, which includes eight different phone chargers, right? It can take quite a while as you go from the large multiple bags that you want to the single small bag of what you need. So it's all about preparation, thinking about what you want to do and what you need to take in order to do it. I remember some years ago I went off to Nepal and the amount of medications I had to fit into all of our bags was astonishing. You know, so many antibiotics and so many, you know, things for altitude sickness and what if one of us falls and breaks our legs, we have to have one of those inflatable casts and all of that sort of stuff. So much stuff before we got to thermals, jackets and all of that sort of stuff. A friend of mine is preparing to run her first half marathon in a few months' time. And just this week, she started the Couch to 21K program. I didn't even know there was a Couch to 21K. I've done Couch to 10K. I know you can't tell, but I, I've done Couch to 10K, but Couch to 21K, half marathon? But she has to get ready. She has to prepare. Now, at this point in John's Gospel, John chapter 12, Jesus has been sort of wrapping up his public ministry and he's been raising the stakes big time. Just in the chapter before, he'd been healing on the Sabbath, which was a terrible thing to do in those days. And then he goes along 
he does something quite remarkable. He raises the dead, a man called Lazarus. And he gathers crowds of followers, many of whom believed in him and many who opposed him to the point that they wanted to kill him. And the question is, what is going on? In this story, what's happening to this little man, this individual man in this backwater of the Roman Empire, off in the far, far flung reaches of the Roman Empire? And what does that man in that tiny little town, in that place, those so many years ago, have to do with us? Why should it matter? How does what happened to him have anything at all to do with 21st century Australia? We've read, if you've read John before, you've read what the beginning, what we just read in John chapter 12, what the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life was like. And what happened to him and how he prepared for what was about to happen, that first Good Friday. How he prepared to walk the final steps to dying on the cross. And the passage opens with this. Now, usually I don't put every verse up on the screens, but because this is Easter and because we love having visitors, every verse that I refer to should come up on the screen, but I'd love you to look at it in your Bibles as well. But if you can't find it quickly enough, if you don't, then it's up on the screen. And for you at home, it's for you as well, of course. So the passage opens like this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So it's six days before Passover. And interestingly enough, today we are six days before Passover. This is one of the years where Passover and Good Friday actually coincide, well, Good Saturday, actually coincide. So they're the same day, we're six days before that great Jewish feast where they remembered the escape from Egypt 1,300 years before this time. And this was to be Jesus' last Passover. He's coming to Jerusalem, having been out in the countryside, and he moves closer to Jerusalem, just three kilometres from Bethany. So you see the map up there. Well, it's not a map, it's an aerial photograph. Bethany on the far right, Jerusalem with Temple Mount on the far left. It's a short walk. In between is that other place you might have remembered from Bible reading, Bethphage. And it's still there. Now, this is a picture from 1905. Tim? Sorry, we've got another picture. Yep, that's the one. So that's Bethany in 1905 from one of the old photographs. And Bethany, you can still visit, and there's a place called Bethany, and in the middle of Bethany is still this supposed shrine of Lazarus' tomb. But this, now that he's moved to Bethany, he's come to within reach of Jerusalem... It's bringing him close to the end of his ministry and his life. And the rest of John's Gospel, right through, is really about the rest of his life, the last week of his life. But then John focuses, did you see? He focuses in on the family that is very special to Jesus. It was at Lazarus's grave in chapter 11 that he was so deeply moved that he wept. Jesus wept and Mary and Martha were there. Martha was serving the food and Mary was at Jesus' feet and now she does something that today we would be offended by. She washed his feet. 
See verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But this was no ordinary washing. This was much, much more. You see, it was normal for travellers to need to wash their feet when they arrived in the house. They wore sandals, not like this picture where they're wearing gummies, but look at the gummies, you can imagine. They wore sandals because the roads were dusty. Their feet became, I use the word, manky. You, know, you wouldn't want to go near them because the roads were also used by the animals. And you know what animals do while they walk along. And you had to pick your way through and, of course, you wouldn't always... And so you would, you'd be dusty, you'd be dirty, you'd be muddy, you'd be covered with manure because of what the roads were like. So when you entered someone's home, you really needed to wash your feet. And you would wash your feet. It was the normal thing to do. And most houses had a little place for you to do that. But if someone washed your feet for you, it spoke of something else. It spoke of, the, of, of your significance, the one who is being washed, your significance in the household or in the, in the world or in the, in the society. It spoke of how important that person might be to the person washing. Now, Jesus was a rabbi, that means a great teacher, and which probably actually in and of itself didn't attract someone to wash their feet necessarily. But he was very special to Martha, Mary and Lazarus because just in the last chapter, he had raised their brother from the dead and Lazarus was sitting there with them. So Mary washed his feet in this gesture of the deepest gratitude and love. In fact, in chapter 14, chapter 13, at the very beginning of the next chapter in John's Gospel, John washes the feet of the disciples, exemplifying the attitude of service, of importance, of love that they are to have one to another. But then Mary does something very strange. She wipes his feet with her hair. Now, most of us know that that wouldn't work very well, right? Hair and towels don't sort of, they're not sort of the same thing. But she did it just from the sheer love she had for him. And it's even more than that. I look around now, and we live in a, in a Western democracy, right? We live in a Western world where things aren't like this. But this is a display of public intimacy, Right? In the ancient world, and even in much of the world today that's not like us, no one sees a woman's hair except in private. And usually just their close family. And she's taken this expensive perfume, she's poured it all over his feet and he's wiping it in his most intimate of acts. And did you hear? She gets criticised for it. Verse 4. But one of his disciples, an important word, name coming up here, of course, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, it's sort of a good question, isn't it? There's all this money being wasted on washing a foot. You can imagine it, can't you, that it would be seen as a waste of money, just gone all over the floor. 
But Jesus defends Mary, where he says, verse 7, leave her alone. Get off her case. See, what Mary is doing is good, but there's this double meaning that Mary and everybody else hadn't seen, but Jesus uncovers for us. And John, Jesus explains in verse 7, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, I think that is pretty unexpected. Someone comes in, you wash their feet, and they say to you, you're getting me ready for my death. That would be surprising, wouldn't it? I wonder what Mary thought, what Judas thought. I don't know about you, but if I was one of them and had not long ago seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, who's just sitting over there, probably just over where Diva is at the moment, you know, uh, and then he says, I'm about to die and I'm going to be buried. I'm not sure I'd believe it. I'd just seen him overcome death. I'd just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Who could kill this man who had power over life and death? But the pressure is building and the plots are hatching. Verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, you see the irony in that? They were going to kill Lazarus after he'd just been raised from the dead? Like, bounce him back and kill him again? But his resurrection... Lazarus's resurrection was about to lead to Jesus being arrested and tried and crucified. Hanging on that cross on Good Friday, that first Good Friday, and buried the same day. And here, Mary is preparing Jesus for that, preparing him for his burial. But there is a double, double meaning. Not only is there the double meaning of getting him ready for it, but there's another one as well. There's another meaning in the background. Normally, someone walks into your house, they've got manky feet, what would you wash their feet with? Water, right? At least. Maybe soap if you had it. They didn't really have soap, but water. But Mary is washing Jesus' feet with oil. A special expensive oil called nard which is worth a year's wages, as we've heard. And when you wash or smear or pour oil on someone, the word that you use is anointing. That's what you do with oil. And the person you anoint in the Bible is the king. He has oil poured on him, and that marks him out as a king. And in her gesture of love, Mary unknowingly is anointing Jesus, Christing him, because that's what Christ means. Christ means God's king, his chosen one, in the true sense, with the overtones making him king, which, if we see, is exactly what happens next. Jesus doesn't slink into Jerusalem knowing that everyone is out to kill him. He makes an entrance. And so we come 
to the Sunday. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. The crowd came out to meet him. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. See, they welcome him. They welcome him as the King of Israel, the Saviour. Hosanna means save us, we pray, we call on you, deliver us. For someone who was in trouble because he threatened the people in control, this was not the way to make it any better. He wasn't there making friends, especially because of the next verse, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, another name for Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. John, see, connects what Jesus does with the prophecy from Zechariah that we read and the disciples didn't get it till much later after that first Easter day. See verse 16, after at first his disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. But see, clearly Jesus knew, Jesus knew the prophecies, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies, Jesus was in a sense enacting them in front of everyone, he found the cult, he organised it, he got them to bring it to him because he knew that was what had to happen. And he also knew it was going to cause a reaction. The people welcomed him as their king, the one who would save them, but others saw the threat. And then less than a week later, they would kill him. They would put him to death as a criminal. Now, some of them there had already seen him raise the dead. They spread the news about him and they went to meet him, verse 17. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he performed this sign, went out to meet him. But that same crowd, the ones who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, in just a few days, want him dead moved by the religious leaders who clearly saw the threat that he was, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And Jesus is walking into it, knowingly, purposely. He was not just heading to his death, he was purposely choosing to go to his death. Not madly, not desperately, but deliberately. He was walking the path that his father had chosen for him. Why? You know, we don't really know what kings are all about. Kings are now state figureheads who don't do much which is why we can so often imagine ourselves without a monarchic head of state. But originally, 
kings took responsibility for your security. They fought for you. They protected you. They were your champion. They stood up for you. But they did something else as well. You may have heard of a thing called single combat, where two groups of opposing tribes would choose their champion who would stand in for them and fight the battle one against one. And whichever champion won, that side won the battle. It's the story of David and Goliath, in a sense. We have the two great champions coming against out of for the, the, the Philistines and out of Israel. David stood in for the whole of Israel and Goliath stood in for the whole of Philistines and whoever won, and we know the end of the story, of course, that Goliath was brought down by this little shepherd boy, whoever won, won. And that's what kings were. They were your substitute. They were your representative. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He is our substitute. The one who takes our place and faces our enemies for us. But the enemy is one that you and I could never defeat on our own. The enemy that we all face is death. And the reason we face it is because we ignore God. We turn away from his offer of life if we trust in the Lord Jesus. And the Bible calls that attitude, that turning away, that rebellion, calls it sin. And it conquers every one of us unless Jesus is our substitute because he is our king and our champion. But the Bible does something else. It talks about this king as a lamb. Back in John chapter 1, John the Baptist says this. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, because the way this king becomes our substitute is not by fighting a battle. He doesn't get up there with his big sword and slay this thing called sin somehow or other, but he does it by dying, by Good Friday, like the sacrifice lamb at Passover day. And that's why Passover is important, because at Passover, the lamb died for the sins of the people so that God would pass over them in judgment, would not bring his punishment upon them. So Jesus died at Passover because Jesus is our sacrifice lamb and he takes the punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God, the rebellion that we all have and we all need rescue from. So the challenge is to be prepared. What are you preparing for at the moment? you're a school student I imagine you're preparing for holidays yeah if you're a parent you also are preparing for holidays <laughs> but all of us are preparing for something we're making plans about something in the coming days weeks months there is a government and an opposition preparing for something at the moment I believe that may well be called today an impending federal election Easter reminds us that all of Jesus' life 
was preparing him for his death. That awful day that we rejoice in and call Good Friday. And Jesus spent his life for that reason, knowing that he was born to live and then to die. To die for our rebellion, to bring us forgiveness. Because we all need that forgiveness. We all have made a mess of our lives and made an even bigger mess of our relationship with God. But Easter gives us a way out of that mess. Because we all have to face those consequences. The consequences of ignoring our creator. The one who gave us life. The one who gave us every good thing. And we all ignore him. And that's why Jesus came and went through all of this. Because our sin needed to be dealt with. And there is no way we can deal with it ourselves. So Jesus dealt with it for us by going to the death that he was prepared for and crowned, that's what Palm Sunday is all about, crowned as the king of God's people, as our champion, as our representative, as our substitute. If we will only put our trust in him, only if he is your and that is the wonderful exciting overwhelming easter event that begins on palm sunday and there's so much more to come join us again on for the message on good friday and then the triumphant message on easter day as jesus dies and then rises triumphant over the grave defeating death for us and breaking the gates of hell open But the great offer that is for us now, is for you now, is forgiveness. The broken relationship that we all have with God, he can fix. And he's offering in the death of his son to fix today. If you don't yet put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you can't look at the king coming in on the donkey and say, he is my king, then you can do something about that today. You can put your trust in him as your king. You accept him as your king. If you like to talk about that more, please come and talk to me about it or talk to Lauren about it who's leading the meeting. We'd love to talk to you. You can put it in our connection form, which will come up later, and we'd love to talk to you about that sort of thing because you can, you can be right with God. Because it's not about being good. This is where we all get it wrong. It's not about how good we are, how much we feel like we're doing the right thing. It's not about being strong in yourself and and making it through everything. It's actually about being weak and knowing you need help. Reaching out to God and asking for him to forgive. And that's what God is offering you today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your Son, Christ, what he came to do, for that set purpose in his heart and mind to serve you to the very end. And as the crowd once welcomed him to Jerusalem with cries of praise as their long-promised king, 
may we welcome Christ into our hearts and lives as the King who is our substitute and champion. Hosanna. Amen. Now we are going to sing...